Welcome to This Just Is. I hope you are well. It appears we could be looking at the end of this year-long saga soon. I pray that you're all hanging in there. I cannot believe it has been a whole year of this. But here we sit. We made it. We're breathing, and I hope thriving despite the conditions we face. Something tells me that this experience, the pandemic, will make us all a bit stronger, a bit more able to handle adversity, and roll with the punches. That's my hope anyway. Is it wishful thinking? Maybe, probably, but we might as well be wishful because the opposite does not seem all that helpful anyways, right? So we're going to try something a little different with this episode. If you'll bear with me, I think you'll find this interesting. So let's start with a simple question. What is money? Really, what is it? Most people think of money in considerably basic terms, and I must admit that I did as well. I never really thought too deeply about it. I've been told that having a fair bit of it would be a good thing, and most people feel that way as well. Money is the paper stuff that we use to acquire things that we need and want from other people, businesses, or service. We have all come to a tacit agreement that the paper or coins created by our governments and central banks has some form of value, and you will willfully trade me an item, good, or service for this currency. I want something. How do I acquire it? I use money to do so. That's sort of the basic idea of it, but perhaps we can go a level deeper. What does money represent to you as an individual or really to any of us in a society? Money itself is simply a representation of human efforts and energy. Let us just say, for example, that you, the listener, are going to give me money for something. I will perform a service for you or create a product that is desirable at a price you're willing to pay. You will then agree to compensate my energies and efforts in the form of an agreed-upon currency that I can then use to exchange for goods and services as I please. Once that transaction is completed, you have transferred your monetary energy to me in the form of currency, and now I am the temporary owner of that money. I can then repeat the process I just described, switching my position to yours. We have all heard the adage, money makes the world go round, and this sort of serves as an active example of that. We're simply exchanging a transmuted form of human energy back and forth with each other. If you're a business owner, your product or service has value to people, then they will gladly pay for it. This approach can extend from a street vendor serving shaved ice on the corner for three bucks to Tim Cook slinging Apple products your way for thousands of dollars, operating a company worth trillions of dollars. The premise itself remains constant. Now, let's go a layer deeper And one can even think of money as a form of primitive technology. And the basic form of it, conceptually, has not changed all that much in literally thousands of years. Early civilizations used actual hard goods in the form of trade before the invention of money. I have three bushels of grain. You have a goat. You need some grain and I need a goat. Let us exchange goods and we can both compromise on something we need or want. It's easy enough. That's known as the bartering or trade system. I'm sure that some of us remember using pogs as youngsters or less fortunate adults. I remember this being a very early introduction to the barter system for me. By the way, if anyone is in the market for pogs, let me know. I'm sure I still have some. However, uh, as our societies grew and became more complicated, this sort of simple trading, although still practiced in principle somewhat frequently, fell out of favor for a multitude of reasons and was widely replaced by a monetary system of some kind. Some Native Americans used wampum, which were like shiny shells and beads that they used as an early form of money uh, that could indicate status or be traded as a form of currency. Some civilizations used coins made from precious and semi-precious metals. 
and they had some form of utility, items like gold and silver. Again, people still own some of these items, but by and large, they do not use them for daily currency purposes, more stores of value or collectibles. Most people are not walking into their local coffee shop looking to pay for a macchiato with a rare pog slammer, a wampum, or silver bullion. You get what I'm saying. So paper money, also known as fiat currency, adds a simplicity to purchasing goods and services that other forms of money as we know them do not offer. The term fiat comes from the Latin root meaning determination by authority, which I got to be honest, when I looked that up, was a little scary to me. So your central bank and respective government, whether it's the Fed in the U.S. or the ECB in Europe, they work hand in hand to create monetary policy and govern that system. We as citizens of a country have zero control of our monetary policy. We can only work to acquire the money as best we can and then use it within the guidelines that our governments or central banks deem appropriate. So in a way, our money, though effective as a means of exchange, is regulated purely by bureaucrats and politicians. And those individuals look at certain economic conditions and adjust their policies as they see fit. They create the money, they make the rules, they control it all. And I can continue on here a lot about inflationary monetary policy and money printing, but I think I'll end it here with an amazingly simple fact that left my jaw on the floor when I learned it. There has never been a fiat currency in the history of human civilization that has not gone to zero in value. I repeat, there has never been a paper money that has ever not eventually failed as a form of currency and become worth nothing. Yeah, I know. It's crazy, right? Now, nothing lasts forever. I get that to an extent, but an endless cycle of fiat currencies rising and falling only to be replaced by other fiat currencies that eventually rise and fall operated by central banks and governments is an inherently flawed system. You do not have to be an economist to understand that. People are not bad at money, per se. I mean, we've gotten this far, and that's impressive. But what if there was a technology that could potentially solve many of the problems we are facing with our current monetary system? Is there a form of technology or immutable computer code that can solve all of our issues associated with money? What if it was not controlled by a central bank or government? What if there was a limited supply that could not be added or subtracted from? What if it could be transferred and settled instantly without an intermediary to anyone anywhere in the world? Could this sort of idea be the answer to our money woes? I'm sure that many of you are hearing all sorts of news about Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, and blockchain technology. Some people would have you believe that we are witnessing an active breakthrough in monetary technology, one that has not occurred in thousands of years. Others would argue that it is a speculative bubble or a Ponzi scheme. I happen to think that it's interesting at the very least, and the fact that these cryptocurrencies are now worth literally trillions of dollars means something. Many people are waking up to the reality of what money is, and perhaps this roughly decade-old technology is the beginning of a monetary revolution. Where and how does technology fit into this equation? How will automation and artificial intelligence impact not only our monetary system, but our lives in total? We spoke with Kevin Roos, a tech writer from the New York Times, to discuss further. I'm sure many of you technophiles out there have read Kevin's articles or heard his amazing podcast, Rabbit Hole, a must-listen. He just released a new book entitled Future Proof, Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation. The book is fantastic, and I highly recommend everyone read it. I wanted to first discuss cryptocurrency and blockchain with Kevin and then segue into what the future holds for us with regards to artificial intelligence, 
automation, and how humans can thrive in a technologically advanced future. We had a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Here he is, the always insightful Kevin Roos. Kevin, thank you for coming on. I know that you're busy. Your book, Future Proof, Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation is excellent. I loved it. I think everyone should read it. I think it's an important book. And in the interest of not having a conversation where we just go, hey, tell me about your book. What's the genesis behind how you wrote it? And what made you decide to, and tell us about, you know, where are you from and all that? I, I thought that since we have someone from the New York Times that writes about technology, like it would be good to find sort of an elegant, more interesting angle into a discussion, a discussion about artificial intelligence, technology automation. And one of the things that's sort of in the zeitgeist right now that I'm very interested in and want to hear more about from someone who probably knows a lot more about it than I do is, is Bitcoin, blockchain, and cryptocurrency. And I think that a lot of people hear it and go, oh, yeah, blockchain. Oh, okay, Bitcoin. And they just kind of, <laughs> that's kind of where it stops. But something that you're excellent at in, in the articles you write and in your book is, is you're really good at breaking down sort of somewhat complicated concepts and explaining them in an easy way, sort of a, a layman's term. And I was wondering if you could just kind of break down for, for people listening, and then we can kind of go into the, into the deeper water after this of like, what is blockchain? What is cryptocurrency in sort of general terms? Yeah, sure. Fire away. Um, and it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Wow. Where do we start? Um, so the blockchain is the sort of generic term for a kind of, they call it a distributed ledger. And it is basically like a digital record that you can enter things into. And that once they're there, they're permanent and they're immutable. You can't change them. And the way this works is a little complicated, but basically you have, there's no like central computer where this is all hosted. It's all distributed, meaning that, you know, millions of computers around the world are registering these, everything that's entered onto the blockchain. And, a, you know, copy is, is, is essentially made everywhere all at once, every time it's updated. And so you have things like Bitcoin, which are built on top of a blockchain. And Bitcoin obviously is not paper money. It's not coins. It's, it's, it's entries on this Bitcoin digital ledger that tell you how much Bitcoin you have and whether you're buying or selling. Or... And the, the thing that people really like about it in the tech world is, um, A, it's making a lot of them very rich. It's gone up uh, like a crazy amount um, in the last year, especially. Um, but they also like that it's kind of stateless and borderless and there's no central bank of Bitcoin that is controlling the money supply. Um, and so I think the more sort of libertarian minded folks like that. And also there's no um, transaction cost, which makes it useful for things like sending money abroad, which, you know, normally you would have to use a money order or Western Union or something. These things are very expensive, especially for people um, outside the outside the U.S. Um, so that's sort of 
blockchain Bitcoin 101, um, the newest thing in this world that everyone's really excited about right now are these NFTs, these non-fungible. Yeah, they just sell one that sold, you know, for from a famous artist for $60 million today. And you're just kind of scratch my head. I, I'm trying everything I can to understand what what the craze is associated with these. It's essentially artwork or like a, a blockchain being applied to a piece of artwork or a digital token of some kind that can be sold and resold, but the owner in perpetuity can get a piece of the sale in perpetuity, which is very kind of a unique sort of repurposed sale system, I guess is what you, you know, it's, it's kind of unique that way. And that it's not like someone buys a piece of artwork and then they decide, you know what, I'm going to sell it. And the artist just has the original sale. They have a piece of it forever, which I think is kind of novel and interesting. It's not not uncommon in, in, you know, the royalty and publishing world, but not at this scale. Yeah. Yeah. They're really, um, a cool technology and there, there are issues with them. I mean, there's the <laughs> yeah. environmental impact and it's obviously a, you know, something is what looks like a bubble right now. And yeah. when, uh, you know, JPEGs are selling for $69 million at auction. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, <laughs> you're just, yeah. So, uh, Trevor, uh, sent me this, you know, Trevor who's helping me produce this, sent me the, the, uh, that link this morning. And I was like, cause I've been, I've been getting, you know, emails from NFT, you know, or galleries essentially like asking if I want to bid on these things. And they're like, you know, 5,000, 8,000. I'm like, I don't, I don't have, have $8,000 to spend on something. I don't even know what it is, you know, but, but there are people buying them. There's a marketplace for them. But yeah, I think you're right that the NFT space and that the NFT space is built on a different technology, which is, which is Ethereum, right. Which is a sort of a decentralized computing platform. Uh, that other technologies can be built on top of, right? Is that sort of a general? Right. So Ethereum has its own blockchain and it allows these smart contracts, basically mm -hmm. executable sort of mini, you know, lines of code that can execute, you know, when you, when something happens. So, you know, the, with NFTs, when you sort of sell and resell them, the original artists can sort of put in, the smart contract that they get, you know, 5% of the purchase price every time it's sold. And that contract can't be changed, can't be deleted. It's there on the blockchain for as long as the blockchain exists. So NFTs are sort of from, from sort of what I've, I've talked to some people who buy and sell them and people who sort of deal in them. And it's kind of like the, the, the closest analog in sort of the offline world would be something like, like, like sports cards. Yeah. Um, trading cards. Like, yeah. you know, if you, if you buy a rare sports card, if you buy a Michael Jordan rookie card, it's probably going to come with like a certificate of authenticity. And basically NFTs use the blockchain as the certificate of authenticity. And so makes it very easy to prove I own this thing. Yes. It's a, you know, it's a JPEG and you could easily copy and paste it, you know, a million times, but there's only one original of that JPEG and the owner of that, that JPEG is registered on the blockchain. And sort of, you can bake in any sort of terms you want into it, like essentially a contract, like, as you mentioned, like if it gets resold, the artist can be cut in at a diminishing percentage or the same percentage or, or whatever. So that's, that's obviously interesting. And that kind of leads me into my next question is, is like, how it's it's obviously dis a disruptive technology 
Um, and it's a disruptive asset class in the sense that it is peeling sort of um, money away from other asset classes um, it, with regards to like traditional investment instruments. And like, how do you see foresee blockchain cryptocurrency in the future being utilized versus how it's being utilized now? Um, do you see a universe where there, you know, you know, maximalists would have you say that Bitcoin will be the global reserve currency? Do, do you think that that is a that's a possibility that that could actually happen, or do you see it being another um, another cryptocurrency, or will there be some sort of mixture of stable coins like U.S. dollar? tokens essentially instead of paper money and these other currencies living alongside of them like where do you think that nets out and and how disruptive will that be to the kind of centralized monetary system moving forward oh man i mean i am not a crypto expert i i know enough to be dangerous on a podcast but i'm i'm not a there are people much smarter than i am on this subject but i i so i don't know how much my predictions are worth on on the future of bitcoin and crypto i mean i think that they're the people who believe in this and and i'm i'm getting more convinced about the the sort of value of of crypto as an asset class um will tell you that, you know, this is going to be the new gold, that, you know, this is going to be what central banks will hold. Companies will store their money in Bitcoin rather than the local currency. I think that part is plausible because, you know, you, the, the thing that's, that people, you know, really gravitate toward with Bitcoin is it's, it's untouchable, essentially, um, it's, you know, no government can seize it from you. Um, you know, if you're doing business in a country that is sort of has a hostile government and they get mad at you, like they, they can't, they can't raid your, your Bitcoin wallet if you're a, a big company. And so, um, and it's also makes transferring money very easy. So I think for, for transfer, I think it could be the global transfer currency where if you're, trying to send money across the world somewhere, either as a person or as a company, um, Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency will be how you do it. But, you know, again, I'm not, uh, take this for what it's worth. No, no, I, I, I'm just, I'm just curious, but that's someone from, and, and I think, you know, we'll transition into artificial intelligence in, in a minute as to how it sort of blends into this. But, you know, there are, there are people that I've, you know, I've read articles and I've seen obviously a lot of videos about people talking about this as a sort of, transformational time in what's considered the quote unquote technology of money. And that's kind of what I'm more interested that maybe you can speak to of the idea of that we've not really had advancements in the technology of money for thousands of years. Money's been pretty much a representative of, we all agree that something's valuable and then we hand it back and forth to each other and that it's a representative of, of our monetary, it's, it's energy essentially that we're handing back and forth to each other for goods and services or, or whatever debts, whatever it might be. Um, but this actually might represent a transformation in the idea that that money itself is a technology and that by incorporating into a digital platform natively the way that it's being done now, that it that it actually is a incredibly important um, moment in, in human history to where now we have this sort of technology slash money as opposed to just a representative of that. It, it can, is that something you could talk talk to talk about a little bit? Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a big moment in the technology of money. Um, I think you know we've seen 
um, we've seen lots of sort of changes to institutional tradition as a result of the internet. And I think that, you know, there have been some people who have said, you know, that Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrency is going to be like the, the native currency of the internet. Um, and, I, and I believe that. I, I think there's a chance that, you know, we will not build financial, we will have sort of a parallel financial system uh, on the internet that, you know, people use for everyday purchases or for storing value. I think right now it's a much too volatile currency, at least Bitcoin is, to be useful. Um, it's, it's you know, appreciating like crazy, obviously, and you can get rich trading it. But, um, but it's, you know, any, any currency that's going up, you know, 10% in a day or down 10% in a day, like you're not really going to buy anything with that and feel good about it. A, a colleague of mine, actually, Cashmere Hill, um, who, uh, who Trevor knows, um, she uh, bought a, a pizza in like 2013 with Bitcoin. And, uh, That's a and fa- it was like, it's like famous. It's like, you know, it's $280 million or something like that. Right. No, she, she paid, oh. I think 10 Bitcoin oh, my God. Um, for, for a pizza. And now that's like, you know, three quarters of a million dollars. <laughs> it's like, yeah, there, there's even, I think there's one that's even like, it was in the, it was early on, even earlier in that in the thousands. And there's some, a guy who was an early adopter who paid like 2,500 Bitcoin for like two Papa John's pizzas or something. Yeah. And like, that that is like sort of the funny end of it of that like hurts. oh my god that, that's yeah. like that's that's rough although but. my favorite bitcoin story was was in a story that one of my colleagues at the times wrote um maybe a month or two ago and it was about people who've gotten locked out of their bitcoin wallets oh yeah those are great um, yeah and there was a guy who had like i think it was 20 million dollars in in a bitcoin wallet and he had forgotten the password and his um the computer that like, you know, had the, the, the private key on it allowed him to like log in 10 times before it completely wiped itself. And, and, and he had tried nine times. Oh. And so he had like one, he had like one more shot um, at getting the password and getting his millions of dollars out. Um, and he was like afraid to do anything with it. So like that kind of thing doesn't happen. I mean, that's, that's the reason I, I think there will still be sovereign currencies because, something like that can't happen. I mean, it could happen theoretically, but you know, if you lose the password to your chase login, you, you just know, call you the call bank yeah, yeah, and yeah. say, what's my password. Yeah, so there are benefits uh, to centralization in that, in that sense of like, you're not this lone wolf that if you lose your keys, it's like, well, fuck, I just lost, you know, $80 million. I mean, there's another story I saw where it's, I think it was a guy in England. He like threw away a computer and it was in a landfill. It's still in a landfill somewhere. And he told like, the local, you know, commission, the like sanitation commission, like I'll give you a like half of it if you can find it for me. And they still haven't found it, but they're like wow. searching through garbage to try to find it. But um, what I wanted to talk about one thing that uh, that might that you you touch on on your book to to some extent, but I think is is, is sort of an important, and interesting notion for people that maybe haven't read your book is is like what are some of the indicators or signatures that you might identify that show sort of that the artificial intelligence revolution has like sort of fully arrived, you know, is it as simple as a fleet of self-driving trucks? Is it, is there something is like, what's the canary in the coal mine? Are we already there? Or is it sort of a slower insidious growth pattern? Is it punctuated equilibrium or is it sort of like, it just sort of arrives and all of a sudden before you know it, 
it's it's all here and it's all doing its thing. I think it's here. I don't think there was a moment where the switch flipped. Um, but I think in the past decade, especially with advances and things like uh, deep neural networks and other techniques, um, we, you know, just think about like your day, like this morning, mm-hmm. you know, I woke up, I checked Twitter. That's one AI that I interacted with. I looked at Gmail. Uh, that's another AI that I interacted with. I, you know, asked my Alexa what the weather was going to be, um, which was a third AI. And then I listened to some music that was, you know, on a playlist that Spotify's AI put together. So like that's before breakfast, I'm interacting with, you know, three or four, like, not just like, you know, low grade AIs, but those are AIs that have, you know, really cutting edge machine learning techniques in them. Billions of dollars have been spent to develop them, you know, PhDs from in, in artificial intelligence from the top schools have, you know, have worked on them and they're, you know, they're pointed at our brains every day, all day. And so I think the, the people who are sort of waiting for self-driving cars, um, like I get that cause that's the sci-fi sort of indicator that you're in the future is when the cars drive themselves. But like, there's so much AI in everyday life today that we, it's just invisible to us, um, but it's influencing everything. Yeah. And, you know, you hear people talk about this idea of, of like a singularity, a, a moment where technology and, and humans become integrated. And I, my notion is that people think of this as, as like machines being like, bi- like biological machines being placed into our bodies and that we become part of technology in, in sort of that sense. But my argument, and maybe you agree with this, or I'd love to hear what you think, is that it's kind of already here in the sense of, these algorithms, these applications, companies, um, industries really are, are utilizing artificial intelligence in a way that's like seeping into your brain in ways that we don't even understand and that they've been designed that way so that we're utilizing these technologies and, and, and they're vying for our attention. And I think if you asked 100 people, 99 of them would say, I'd much rather lose my wallet than my phone. Mm-hmm. In the sense of, you know, the utility of your phone is much more important than the utility of your wallet. Your wallet's like a hard asset, the credit cards and your ID. You can replicate and find all of those things on your phone and then get them brought, you know, mailed to your house with like no friction. You talk about a lot about friction in, in your uh, in your book. Um, so would you like what do you think about that notion that that maybe like these it's it's sort of it's arrived the way that artificial intelligence has sort of arrived that this singularity moment is actually here and that what, what Kurzweil talks about of, of it being like this this kind of larger moment when everything you know it gives it like a date it's kind of like sort of evolving to like in my opinion where it seems like it's here yeah well I I don't love the sort of Kurzweil notion of like a singularity, like a moment when mm-hmm. machines will sort of outrun humans um, for a couple of reasons. One is I don't think that's like how technology arrives. It doesn't come all at once. I mean, it's never yeah. come all at once. You know, the industrial revolution took decades to happen. Um, things are happening faster now for lots of reasons, but it's still not going to be that, you know, you go to bed one night and humans are in charge of the world and you wake up the next morning and machines have taken over. Um, but I th- also think it assumes that humans are fixed in their humanity. Um, if you sort of like think about it, 
as like a, you know, rising water level where like, you know, AI is just getting better and better and better. And like soon it's going to like get over our heads. Like, I just don't think that's how it works because because these machines are actually changing how human we are. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, like we're like squatting down as the water is coming up. I think I've, I've run out the course on this metaphor, but you know what I mean? Like we're, Mm -hmm. we're sort of like getting shorter because we are behaving more predictably Mm -hmm. and more robotically as a result of the AIs in our life and, and how they're influencing our choices and our behaviors. So we're actually making it easier on the robots because of the way that we act in response to their influence. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I, I want to talk more about that uh, because you discuss a, a good portion of that in your book, but um, like there's another thing that you talk about kind of early on in your book about this, the concept of like that there's, there seems to be at least in the people you've interviewed and the discussions you had, there's these two camps of people. There are people that look at artificial intelligence and it's a blue sky. You know, it's going to help humans. It's going to liberate them. There's no more repetitive activity. We're going to be free to kind of really use our intellect to, to solve complicated problems and that we'll be moving hand in hand into the future with technology. And it's going to really be, you know, great of great assistance to to uh, to global to our global society. And then, you know, there's other people who are technologists, futurists, titans of industry, um, computer scientists that are really scared of of what artificial intelligence and automation could potentially bring uh, to us. And like, I, I want to kind of go down the, the dark rabbit hole here for a little bit um, and discuss the latter of like, but beyond simply restructuring like the nature of work or potential job displacement, which everyone kind of knows about of automation um, and like the social impact, like what are the things that personally make you the most uneasy about AI and automation like that you've noticed that, that kind of give you a bit of a, of a scare, like kind of rattle you a little bit? It's a good question. I mean, I, there are a couple buckets of things that scare me um, and they don't actually have to do with the technology itself. Um, most of them, um, they have to do with how people are, using the technology or misusing the technology. So one bucket of things that I'm worried about are, are things that will um, chip away at civil liberties, will target vulnerable populations, things like facial recognition and law enforcement. Um, you know, those are scary because we, we know that they are not um, bias free and we know that they are not error free. And those have real consequences for people when they screw up. I mean, people have gone, gotten arrested wrongly because an AI, you know, mislabeled their face in the database. So that kind of thing is scary. But I'm also like, I think the thing that I'm most concerned about right now is not actually the like frontier AI, the like cutting, cutting edge machine learning, deep neural networks stuff. Like that stuff is, is there are reasons to, to worry about it, but, but I'm actually more scared about sort of the the trailing edge of this AI revolution. So right now, a lot of companies are still getting up to speed on automation. They're using, you know, their systems are outdated. Um, But now, you know, during the pandemic, they have started sort of modernizing and they have hired consultants and they've brought in people to essentially automate 
the parts of their business that can be automated and, and replace the humans. And there's a multi-billion dollar industry that basically no one knows exists outside of it called robotic process automation or RPA. And that's these firms that sell basically these bots that, you know, they're not, um, they're not even really AI. Some of them, they're more like plugins for your database that, you know, convert one kind of file to another kind of file, or like they, you know, scan your expense reports and, you know, look for anomalies or something like that. Uh, like the boring sort of back office stuff that lots of people right now are are employed to do. And so that technology is is dangerous for a couple of reasons. One is it actually is being deployed in order to put people out of jobs. Uh, and I heard when I was reporting this book, like many conversations between executives where they would tell me on the record, like, we are so excited to implement this automation program. It's going to free up all our workers to work on higher value tasks. They're going to be more creative. They're going to love their jobs more. And then you look, you know, you come back three months later and they've just laid off half the finance department. And that kind of thing is happening a lot right now. And so I actually think there's, there's a couple of reasons that's dangerous. One, obviously it displaces workers, which is hard and creates real hardship. And that's not something to, to sort of look at, look lightly at. Then there's this sort of macroeconomic reason that that's a bad kind of automation, um, which is takes a little bit to explain, but I can get into it. So it's basically yeah. there, the reason that we haven't historically had high unemployment as a result of automation and new technology. You know, we didn't have mass unemployment after the Industrial Revolution. We didn't have mass unemployment in the 20th century when robots started coming into factories. And the reason we didn't have mass unemployment at those times is because new jobs were being created by the technology at the same time that old jobs were being destroyed. So, you know, you had blacksmiths and people selling buggy whips and, but, and they lost their jobs when the car was invented, but then you had the car and all the jobs that came with that, the car dealers and mechanics and chauffeurs and taxi drivers. Um, so we ended up net gaining jobs from those, uh, those revolutions. But there's a lot of evidence showing that actually the, the equation has flipped in recent years, that we are in industries where automation is happening, uh, old tasks are being displaced at a faster rate than new tasks are appearing. So that's the, the theory, and it's, it's a little esoteric, but basically the, the, the term that economists are using to, to sort of talk about this new sort of kind of automation is so-so automation, which is basically like kind of shitty automation would be like a, <laughs> a less like academic word for it. Yeah. It's like when you call the call center and you try to like get th through the menu to like rebook your flight or something. And like at a certain point, you're just like pressing zero because you're just like, I want to talk to a human. Like, please. Get yeah, there's like human. the tree has like a million branches and <laughs> right. none, none of them are answering the question you need. So it's just like hitting zero. And exactly. And so then sometimes you sometimes you you like you hit the zero and it's like, that's not an option. You're going to talk to a robot. Those are terrifying to me. Yeah, I, I hate that. And I think a lot of yeah. people hate that because it's not actually good automation. It's just, no. it's, it's, it's worse. It's worse than the human who used to do that job, mm -hmm. but it's still being implemented because it's a lot cheaper to have a software program answer the phone than a human. So that kind of automation, the so-so kind or the shitty kind, that's the kind that is 
worrisome to economists because it's not the kind that creates new jobs. It's not the kind that makes the economy more dynamic or that moves us forward. Um, so that's that's the kind that I'm worried about. There's there's a little bit of like an idiocracy kind of feel to that type of tech of that it just becomes this endless loop of inefficiency that's eliminating jobs and not helping anyone accomplish anything um, any better. So can I, I want like I, I was hoping that we could discuss sort of the core concept of of your book, which is this con- this idea of future proofing yourself as an individual in a world that will be more technologically advanced as, as the days move on. And wh- the, the, the kind of maxim that you talk about, or, or at least the theme that I took from it was there's the preserving your humanity is, is sort of an indispensable quality and that remaining human and doing things that are uniquely human are going to be the things that sort of allow you to flourish and and sort of quote unquote thrive or survive in this new automated ar- uh, landscape filled with artificial intelligence. So I just wanted to kind of, if you could to kind of talk broadly about that, and then I wanted to just ask you a few other things yeah. in relation to that. Sure. Well, I think that the, the thing that I realized, the sort of top line takeaway that I realized when I was reporting this book over the last two years is that we've been training people and preparing people for the future entirely backwards. Um, for decades now, we've been telling people, and I heard this when I was in school, and I'm sure you did too, that if you wanted a job, if you wanted to be a productive member of the economy, you would you know, major in science or engineering or math. You would you know, learn to code. You yeah, would STEM hustle. Field stuff, yeah. You would, um, you know, you would hustle, you would life hack, you would optimize your time so that you were a perfect, sleek vessel of productivity. And like, that was good advice for a while, but that actually really is the opposite of what you want if we're moving. And I, I think the evidence is clear that we are moving to a much more automated economy um, because you can't out hustle a machine. Like you just, you just can't. And if you try, not only are you going to fail, but you're going to sacrifice what makes you distinctly human. And so my, my hypothesis, the the thing that the book is about broadly, and the thing that I learned from talking to experts in the field is that we should be preparing people to do uniquely human things. And we should be figuring out what are the things that AI can't do that it's bad at, that it's going to be a long time before it does well. And we should be training people to do those things. Yeah. And, and so that that's sort of a, a wonderful and, and hopeful message. And I wonder if you can elaborate on that in that, like, is that where humans can find their value moving forward in the future? Do you think that that's going to be because I, I feel like we're almost in this crisis of humans feeling connected and feeling value. And that's, I think, part of the reason why you see so much discord and so much anger in on social media, uh, in the mainstream media of this, this longing to, to feel, you know, some amount of value or importance to society. Um, and that arguably technology has been the cause of, of, of that, that lack or that sentiment or that lack of feeling of value. Um, and so, you know, moving forward in, in the new future, like you talk about this in your book of, of this idea of, of like a potter will be more valuable than someone who's a coder because, human human elements and things made by hand and this is already sort of the case or will be more rare and more distinct and more sought after as opposed to just something that's stamped out in a factory in in mexico or india or or somewhere else 
Yeah, that's a big piece of it. I mean, I, I actually didn't come up with this idea. I stole it from um, the the head of AI research at Facebook, who's this guy named Jan LeCun, who's sort of a, a pioneer in in machine learning and deep learning. And um, and he gave this talk where he, he gave two examples. He said, you know, uh, look at a, a Blu-ray DVD player. Like, that's a piece of technology. Like, that's a complicated object. Mm-hmm. It has, you know, hundreds of parts. It's got lasers. It's got rare earth metals. It's got stuff like that. And you can get one for like 75 bucks, if that. Like, it's not that expensive. Because it's entirely made by robots and packed and shipped. I mean, I would be surprised if if two pairs of human hands touch that in its entire production cycle. On the other hand, if you want to buy a nice vase or a handmade bowl, um, that's going to cost you much more than $75 because of the amount of effort that went into it. And um, and in, in social psychology, there's a, a concept um, called the effort heuristic, which basically says that we assign more value to things that we think people worked really hard on. And so I think that explains why, you know, uh, a status symbol now um, is is not to have a big screen TV or a hot tub or something. It's like, do you have an NFT? <laughs> you know, do you have do you have do you have you know? Uh, are you you know? Is your fridge full of craft beer? Yeah. Like, do you have you know artisanal you know pickles in your fridge? Like, it, it's it's a much more sort of you could think of it as like a small batch economy. Yeah. Um, but that's where I think the value is already going and that's where it's going to continue to go as more things are done by machines. Yeah. That, that's such an interesting notion of, of, of like, like the artisans are going to be the, the people that are looked at as the heroes in, in the, in the coming economy. And then the people that are going to be sought after. And then to an extent, like I have a very close friend who's, who does woodworking as, as like a hobby and he's amazing at it. And everyone's like, who made, what is that thing? You know, he made me a watch case. Um, he made a cutting board and people are just enamored by this like very well-designed piece of wood. And then I have like incredibly complicated machines in my house that everyone has that no one really gives a shit about, but people like the cutting board is what everyone wants to talk about. And and, And like, like, we don't, it's weird because there's obvious value to that. That's like a social currency and there's value and it's a utility but we don't recognize that as what's val- like in my ha- in my insurance plan in my house. I don't have the cutting board as something valuable in case something happens. I have my television or my treadmill or whatever it is, and it's such an it's such a mind fuck to think of it that way because we're taught that the things that are like large and manufactured and provide some sort of form of entertainment or transport are the valuable things that you should really focus on. But really, it's like a cutting board or a watch case that. You look at it and you go, wow, that's that's kind of because it was made by another human. It's such an interesting thing to think about. Totally. And that's already happening. I mean, it's already happening with food and craft goods. Uh, I wanted to talk about the U.S. with regards to technology and, and artificial intelligence. And I know that, like, it's important for us to be careful with how we're implementing it and titans of industry and technologists and, and po- po- regulators, politicians should be careful with how we implement technology, but are we behind? Because you hear that a lot as in comparison to other countries, whether it's Southeast Asia or, um, or China, that, that the U S is losing the technology race and that that will definitely have a massive effect on um, the kind of global paradigm uh, moving forward, as far as the power players who are sitting at the table, sort of setting the rules and, 
do you is that an overblown um, statement or do you do you think that it is it is accurate and that we are sort of lagging in, in in that area and it will affect us negatively moving forward or has it already began to affect us that way? So the um, the AI index tracks sort of where AI breakthroughs are happening, where patents are being applied for, where papers are coming out of. And it's sort of a neck and neck, you know, situation between the US and China. And I think it depends what you mean by who's, you know, sort of who's winning is like, you know, are is it who's publishing more papers? Is it who's, you know, winning prizes? Is it who's, you know, making more money off of it? There are various ways that you can sort of judge success in AI. But I'd say that the US and China are certainly the the two um, most prominent uh, countries in the field of AI. Um, And there are some important differences, obviously. Um, You know, China's tech companies obviously have, have close, you know, historically close ties to the Chinese government. Um, that in some ways helps them because they can have much more centralized uh, data, um, which is, you know, helps. And yeah, they just also just have a lot more people. So they're, they're collecting mm-hmm. a lot more data and data is what powers AI. Um, so they have some advantages, but they also have some disadvantages. I think, you know, our, our, you know, capitalist economy without a lot of, you know, excessive state control probably gives us a leg up in some ways. And also, you know, the, the sort of reputation that we have is the sort of magnet for talent. Um, a lot of people who, you know, work in tech around the world want to come to Silicon Valley. They want to work at Google or Amazon. Um, and so I think that's, that's been an advantage for us. Um, thank you so much again for, for joining us and talking to us about this. And again, your book is, is fantastic. And we've talked about a little bit of like the sort of doom and gloom associated with technology and automation and things that can go wrong. But what would you say would be the light at the end of the tunnel for us? And how do we live our lives every day? Not necessarily concerned about automation and artificial intelligence, but just move into the future feeling confident that we're going to be all right and and that that this is going to work out for us. I mean, the hopeful message is that if we get this right, it could be amazing. Um, you know, AI and automation could free us up to do the things that give us joy and meaning. It could move work out of the center of our lives. It could, you know, give us new superpowers. It could help us, you know, fight climate change and come up with cures for diseases. And I mean, there's no shortage of amazing things that this technology could allow us to do. Um, And it could bring us together, you know, as we find ways to kind of stay ahead. Um, you know, that's, that's where I draw my hope from. And the reason that I'm not a total doom and gloom pessimist is because I think we still have a chance to get this right. Awesome. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate you coming on. This is your book is amazing, as I mentioned, and I encourage everyone to read it. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kevin Roos. I think the biggest takeaway is stay human. Don't let the machines win. AI, automation, and technology in theory and as a whole are tools created by us to make our lives better and our work more efficient and productive. It's up to us as humans to determine how frequently we interact with these technologies and to what end. So if you notice yourself on your phone all day asking Alexa every simple question you can figure out on your own and endlessly and anxiously scrolling social media or the news, maybe, just maybe, 
It's time to put the phone down, go for a walk without music, without digital interaction at all, and just enjoy being an untethered human soul. It's a good and necessary medicine for us all and something that I need to do more of as well. I also hope that our discussion regarding blockchain and cryptocurrency was illuminating for some of you. I think it's important to understand and realize when change arrives, and I feel as though we are on the brink of something very unique as it pertains to the future of money. Money cannot buy you happiness, but the reality of our current world dictates that you need some of it in order to feed yourself and your family, put clothes on your back, and put a roof over your head. And more and more, it's becoming harder and more expensive to do all of these things everywhere, especially in the United States. Perhaps investing in cryptocurrency could ease some of that for us down the road. Maybe these newer financial systems and models could allow for a more equitable and fairer future in regards to wealth and economic sustainability. The last year has shown to me, and I'm sure to many of you, a gaping wound and chasm as it pertains to the wealth inequality of our country and across the globe. I would encourage you to research the technology on your own if you're interested, and I'm certainly not telling anyone to go out and spend your life savings on Bitcoin, but it's certainly worth investigating. For me personally, as I've learned more, I see an opportunity for a form of monetary freedom that has never existed for the average person or for anyone, really. Anyone can invest in these currencies for any amount of money in the hopes that these technologies and platforms grow. As the technology grows, so does your investment. You own a part of this new system. You help to run and secure the system, which is pretty cool. You get to actively take part in it. No one can take it from you. It's yours. The same can't be said about your dollars. And we'll leave it at that. I wish you all well and look forward to seeing you again. Thank you for listening. We will be back soon. Be well. This just is.